You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Michael Lewis. This program originally aired in 2010. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm John Greenberg. On Wednesday, author Michael Lewis joined us for the latest installment of our series, Writers on a New England Stage, presented by New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth, in partnership with Yankee Magazine and River Run Books, bringing the best in literature to the Granite State. Author Michael Lewis has covered a lot of ground. His book, Moneyball, looked at the inner workings of professional baseball, while his bestseller, The Blind Side, recently made into an Oscar-winning movie, delved into the back offices of the NFL. But his writing career so far has been bookended by Wall Street. Lewis's first book, Liar's Poker, captured his experiences working for Solomon Brothers in the late 80s and exposed a world of greed and excess. After the financial crisis of 2007, Lewis dove back into Wall Street. This time, he was interested in finding those who did see this crash coming, those who understood what most of us still find hard to understand. The result is his latest book, The Big Short. It's part chronicle of the financial crisis and part page-turning thriller. This week, Michael Lewis came to the music hall where he spoke about his new book, our house band Dreadnought, heard here, provided the evening's music. Writers on a New England stage with Michael Lewis was made possible with support from our broadcast sponsor, Cambridge Trust of New Hampshire. Today, we play back for you part of this performance. Thank you. This book, The Big Short, is a kind of homecoming for me because it takes me back to my writing roots, to the first book I wrote, Liar's Poker. And in some way, I think that the origins of it all is my astonishment that anyone would ever have paid me money to give financial advice. I was raised essentially to be a decorative object. I was raised in New Orleans. I was sent to Princeton where I studied art history. When I would ask my father for career advice, he would recite to me the Lewis family motto, and he swore it was on the coat of arms. And the the Lewis family motto was, do as little as possible. And that unwillingly, It is far better to receive a slight reprimand than to perform an arduous task. (laughs) So in that spirit, I'd stumbled into Solomon Brothers in 1985 and proceeded to give investment advice to professional investors. You know, I think that the astonishment that people would pay me hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to do this led me to write my first book. And I really did think, when I wrote Liar's Poker, that the mere fact that I was being paid to do this signaled that the end was near, that this whole enterprise called Wall Street was doomed. And I thought when I wrote that book, I was writing a period piece about financial insanity that no one would believe if I didn't get it down on paper. And that 20 years from then, people would read it and cackle about what Wall Street was like because it was now such a chastened and different place. And the fact that it didn't change, that it just got worse and worse and worse, was a shock to me, actually. I'd left Wall Street as a writer. I had paid that close attention to what was going on. I wrote about lots of other things. And then in kind of the middle of 2007, I started to pay attention again. And what drew my attention was first the sight of all these big Wall Street firms losing lots of money on their own creations. The Wall Street I had left had been in many ways preposterous. 
but the Wall Street firms were still the smart money at the poker table, that you didn't want to be on the other side of a bet from Solomon Brothers. And something had changed between then and now that it led the Wall Street firms to become the dumb money at the poker table. And I was curious what? And I started really, literally, to kind of wander around Wall Street and talk to people who were prominently associated with the creation of the subprime mortgage bond business. And I found over and again they were willing to talk to me, whereas they might not talk to an ordinary financial journalist, but they were willing to talk to me because they said, oh, the reason I'm working on Wall Street is I read Liar's Poker. And I realized after a while that this was the crisis that I had helped to create, <laughs> that I had written this book that had attracted all these people who then became the dumb money. And it was a funny thing because really I thought I'd written a book about Wall Street that might even deter people from going there, that it might lead people to go do something else with their lives. And instead, the sort of takeaway from that book ended up being, if you know absolutely nothing and you're lazy, you can still make a fortune on Wall Street. And so a lot of people who knew absolutely nothing and were lazy made it for went to, went to Wall Street. So in any case, I started to kind of think about how to make a book about what had happened and how the place had changed. And it became pretty clear right away that much of what I was writing about was rooted in my experience back in the 80s. And what seemed like innocent change in the structure of these big Wall Street firms from partnerships to corporations, when all of a sudden the traders at the firm were playing not with their own money but with other people's money. This was a big, big deal and made possible all that came afterwards. The increased emphasis on the speculative function of the firms as opposed to servicing the customers to generate profits. This was something that really started on the Solomon Brothers trading floor in the 1980s. There were years in the late 80s when a handful, five proprietary traders at the firm generated more than 100% of the firm's revenues, which means they were making bets of such magnitude, they ended up overwhelming the whole business. And this became almost normal at Wall Street firms. There was a cultural change that happened on Wall Street. It started happening a little before I got there, late 70s, early 80s. And basically, the financial industry got intellectualized. It all got very complicated very quickly. And there are reasons this happened. The crudest explanation is the computer. But in any case, you had all of a sudden a different sort of person charged with taking the risk and making the decisions about the money. And if I had gotten to Wall Street just a few years earlier, the people who were the main traders typically were men with high school diplomas who hadn't gone to college, grown up in some horrible New Jersey suburb. They tended to have names like Vinny and Donnie, and they had a lot of hair kind of billowing out of the tops of their collars, and they walked like that. And they were all of a sudden greeted with PhDs in physics from MIT who were doing what they did but in a much more complicated fashion. And the resentment of the old guard towards this change was palpable even when I arrived. I mean, I remember there was a wonderful character, I don't know if you remember him, named Donnie Green. When you got to Wall Street trading floor in 1985 and you had an advanced degree, you were told there were just certain people you stayed away from because they didn't want to see you. And they were usually large and hairy, so we, they weren't hard to identify. And Donnie Green was sort of the epitome of this. And there was a moment that sticks in my head when it was Christmas of my first year at the firm. And there was a young man who had gone to the Chicago Business School who was going back to Chicago for Christmas vacation. He was walking across the trading floor with his bags in his hands. And Donnie Green shouted at him, hey, kid, come over here. 
And the kid kind of quaked in his shoes and didn't want to go talk to Donnie Green, but he went and talked to him anyway. And Donnie Green said, where do you think you're going? And the kid said, I'm going home to go on vacation. It's Christmas. And Donnie Green said, you're flying? You're taking an airplane? And the kid said, yeah. And Donnie Green reached into his pocket and produced a $20 bill and said, good. He said, when you get to the airport, find one of those machines where they sell the crash insurance and buy some crash insurance and put it in my name. And the kid goes, um, why? And Donnie Green said, I feel lucky. <laughs> At the time, I thought of this as the last squawk of a dying breed who was just absolutely outraged to be displaced by this other kind of character. But in retrospect, I think Donnie Green had some instinct that this new creature who was coming onto Wall Street bode ill for the financial system. And in any case, when I walk back into this world, I'm very aware that a lot of what's happened is the natural consequence of these changes that have occurred way back when, and very aware that even though we've arrived at a day of reckoning, it's going to be a long and slow reckoning because we're dealing with events not of the last few years, but of the last 30, really. And a very curious period in finance that I was a part of the beginning of was probably coming to an end. And the thing that struck me first was that the new Wall Street was, on the surface, so much less profane, so much less colorful than the Wall Street I described in, in Liar's Poker, that it had become much more corporate, much more socialized on the surface, sanitized. The behavior had all been cleaned up, basically in the service of preserving the financial insanity just below the surface. And what had struck me as outrageous when I was there had become not just normal, but become squared and cubed. The equivalent of me on Wall Street in 2005 would be upset if he wasn't paid a million bucks. The sums the traders were throwing around to generate their firm's return were no longer hundreds of millions, but tens of billions. And it explained that it had gone on for so long the financial system had become kind of normalized. Explain when the crisis begins, the typical response that I was getting out of people who were in positions of authority about the crisis, people who were at the top of the big Wall Street firms, people who were in the Treasury, people who were in the Fed, the typical response, and you heard it today with Alan Greenspan's testimony, was that you really can't blame us for this because it's a sort of natural disaster. It's a tsunami. Nobody could have seen this coming that since nobody could see it coming, the fact that we didn't see it coming shouldn't be held against us. Hearing this and sensing this was the way the storyline was going to develop, I got very interested in the fact that there were some people who had seen it coming and chose to tell the story of the financial crisis in a very telescope way through the eyes of the people who had clearly seen it coming. And these were the people who had been the smart money at the poker table, the people who had been on the other side of Wall Street bets and made a lot of money. And these people were the people who had short bet against the subprime mortgage bond market, hence the title of the book, The Big Short. And I meant to read a little bit, and I thought what I would read is just the introduction to a few of these characters, because a pattern emerged with these characters I discovered as I wandered around and talked to them, that they were typically not normal. <laughs> they were typically not of Wall Street in some weird way. Even if they happened to be inside a big Wall Street firm, they were basically alienated from the society. And the first of these characters that I'm introduced to you 
was especially peculiar because he actually did work inside of a big Wall Street firm, that he was the one Wall Street trader who early on started to scream to high heaven that the subprime mortgage bond market is going to end in tears, and the only smart thing to do is to bet against it. And his name was Greg Lippman, and he was the head subprime mortgage bond trader at Deutsche Bank. And he was pretty instantly identifiable, interestingly, as a throwback to kind of early 80s Wall Street. But he had no real comfortable home in today's Wall Street. In any case, Greg Lippman, having sort of established his position, essentially against his market, against the financial system, goes out into the world and tries to persuade people to join him in this bet against this monstrosity that's being created, the subprime mortgage bond market. And he has the most terrible time because he doesn't disguise himself in the way that Wall Street people learn to disguise themselves. If a team of experts had set out to create a human being to maximize the likelihood that he would terrify a Wall Street customer, they might have designed something like Greg Lippmann. He traded bonds for Deutsche Bank, but like most people who traded bonds for Deutsche Bank or for Credit Suisse or UBS or one of the other big foreign banks that had purchased a toehold in the U.S. financial markets, he was an American. Thin and tightly wound, he spoke too quickly for anyone to follow exactly what he was saying. He wore his hair slicked back in the manner of Gordon Gecko, and the sideburns long in the fashion of an 1820s romantic composer or a 1970s porn star. <laughs> he wore loud ties and said outrageous things without the slightest apparent awareness of how they might sound if repeated unsympathetically. He peppered his conversation with cryptic references to how much money he made, for instance. People on Wall Street had long ago learned that their bonuses were the last thing they should talk about with people off Wall Street. Let's say they paid me six million last year, Lippmann would say. I'm not saying they did. It was less than that. I'm not saying how much less. Before you could protest, but I never asked, he'd say, the kind of year I had, no way they'd pay me less than four million. Now he had you thinking about it, so the number is somewhere between four million and six million. You could have started out talking about the New York City Ballet and you wound up playing Battleship. Lippmann kept giving you these coordinates until you were almost forced to identify the location of the ship exactly what just about everyone else on Wall Street hoped you'd never do. In further violation of the code, Lippmann was quick to let people know that whatever he'd been paid by his employer was not anything like what he'd been worth. Senior management's job is to pay people, he said. If they f 100 guys out of 100 grand each, that's 10 million more for them. They have four categories, happy, satisfied, dissatisfied, disgusted. If they hit happy, they've screwed up. They never want you happy. On the other hand, they don't want you so disgusted that you quit. The sweet spot is somewhere between dissatisfied and disgusted. <laughs> At some point in between 1986 and 2006, a memo had gone out on Wall Street saying that if you wanted to keep on getting rich, shuffling bits of paper around to no obvious social purpose, you'd better camouflage your true nature. Greg Lippmann was incapable of disguising himself or his motives. I don't have any particular allegiance to Deutsche Bank, he'd say. I just work there. This was not an unusual attitude. What was unusual was that Lippmann said it. The least controversial thing to be said about Lippmann was that he was controversial. He wasn't just a good bond trader. He was a great bond trader. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't even rude, at least not intentionally. He simply evoked extreme feelings in others. A trader who worked near him for years referred to him as the known as Greg Lippmann. When asked why, he said, Greg took everything too far. 
I love Greg, said one of his bosses at Deutsche Bank. I have nothing bad to say about him except that he's a whack job. <laughs> but when you cleared away the controversy around Lippmann's persona, you could see it was rooted in two simple complaints. The first was that he was transparently self-interested and self-promotional. The second was that he was excessively alert to the self-interest and self-promotion of others. He had an almost freakish ability to identify shadowy motives. If you had just donated 20 million bucks to your alma mater, say, and were feeling the glow of selfless devotion to a cause greater than yourself, Lippmann would be the first to ask. So you gave 20 million because that's the minimum to get your name on a building, right? Well, Lippmann wanders the earth with what ends up being maybe the single greatest financial opportunity offered by a Wall Street bond person to a Wall Street customer in the history of man. And the problem he has is no one believes anybody from Wall Street, especially from the bond markets. He has a horrible trouble persuading people to join him in his skepticism of this thing that's going to bring down the system in the end. And in the end, maybe, oh, I don't know, a dozen, 15 investors around the world ended up seeing the world the way Greg Lippmann saw it. And it was these people who became the focus of my story. And I picked three of them through whom to tell the story. But I could have really picked almost any of the 15 because they were all a certain type. The most important thing is they're all kind of cut off one way or another socially from Wall Street. And they were all kind of difficult, complicated characters. The next character who becomes central to the story is a fellow named Stephen Eisman. And Eisman ran a little hedge fund, but a pretty obscure hedge fund called Front Point Partners. And the thing that struck me quite early in the development of this story was that, all right, you have this very strange situation in the financial system. It is essentially organized itself around a single gigantic bet. And it is the bet on or against the subprime mortgage bond market. The vast majority of the financial system is on the wrong side of that bet, including virtually all the big firms and including the supposedly smartest traders inside the big firms. A tiny handful of people are on the other side. And it became kind of clear to me that as I was telling the story, that I was telling a story not just about the degradation of Wall Street, but a story about human perception, sort of why people see the world the way they see the world. Because the truth was there were a set of financial facts out there available for all to see. And 99% of the people had arranged these facts into one sort of picture that was a very pretty, pleasant picture, but not true. And 1% had organized it into a very unpleasant but true picture. And it really was a bit like one of those psychology tests, where they, a drawing that's an optical illusion, where if you're looking at the drawing, 99% of the people see only this beautiful woman in profile. But for some reason, 1% of the people come to that picture, and the first thing they see is that, in fact, the beautiful woman in profile is also an ugly witch staring you in the face. So why people saw what they saw was sort of at the center of this book. And so the characters of the people who had perceived accurately what was going on became kind of central to the story, because why they made the decisions they did was very much bound up with who they were, the experiences they'd had in life, their relationship to the world around them. I mean, in a funny way, it changed my view of the investment business, because I guess I'd always thought of it as a somewhat antiseptic thing. 
and it became pretty obvious that it wasn't, that the decisions people made with money were like all decisions they made under kind of pressure, that they were really reflected who they were. And Steve Eisman, what he is principally, is um, rude. He is intentionally alienating to especially powerful people around him, that although he would be quite sweet to subordinates, quite sweet to people who were powerless, when he sensed he was in the presence of sham authority, he was just out of control rude. Tourette's rude. And in the, the, I'm just going to read you a quote from his wife, from his wife. And this is our first interview. Even on Wall Street, people think he's rude and obnoxious and aggressive, says Eisman's wife, Valerie Fagan. He has no interest in manners. Believe me, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. After she brought him home for the first time, her mother had said, well, we can't use him, but we can definitely auction him off at UJA. <laughs> Eisman had what amounted to a talent for offending people. He's not tactically rude, his wife explains. He's sincerely rude. <laughs> he knows everyone thinks of him as a character, but he doesn't think of himself that way. Stephen lives inside his head. And what I discovered about Stephen Eisman, and one of the reasons he was so capable opposing the financial system in a bet was that he lived in opposition. He took pleasure in sort of finding the, sa the things that were sacred to especially important people and undermining them. So a brief example. Golfing with Eisman wasn't like golfing with other Wall Street people. The round usually began with a collective discomfort on the first tee after Eisman turned up wearing something that violated the Wall Street golfer's notion of propriety. On January 28, 2007, he arrived at the swanky Ballet High Golf Club in Las Vegas, dressed in gym shorts, t-shirts, and sneakers. Strangers noticed, Vinny and Danny, his colleagues. Vinny and Danny squirmed. Come on, Steve, Danny pleaded with a man who technically was his boss. There's an etiquette here. You at least have to wear a collared shirt. Eisman took the cart to the clubhouse and bought a hoodie. The hoodie covered up his t-shirt and made him look a lot like a guy who had just bought a hoodie to cover up his t-shirt. <laughs> in hoodie, gym shorts, and sneakers, Eisman approached his first shot. Like every other swing of the Eisman club, this was less a conclusive event than a suggestion. Displeased with where the ball had landed, he pulled another from his bag and dropped it in a new and better place. <laughs> Vinny would hit his drive in the fairway, Danny would hit his in the rough, Steve would hit his in the bunker, march into the sand and grab the ball and toss it out near Vinny's. It was hard to accuse him of cheating as he didn't make the faintest attempt to disguise what he was doing. He didn't even appear to notice anything unusual in the pattern of his game. The ninth time Eisman retrieved a ball from some sand trap or pretended his shot had not splashed into the water, he acted with the same unapologetic aplomb he had demonstrated the first time. Because his memory is so selective, he has no scars from prior experience, said Vinny. He played the game like a child or like someone who was bent on lampooning a sacred ritual, which amounted to the same thing. The weird thing is, said Danny, he's actually not that bad. As I tracked the trail of Greg Lippman back to its origins, I found that in addition to Eisman, there were these other interesting characters who had, in part because of Greg Lippmann, gotten into this bet, but mainly because of who they were. But predating Greg Lippmann, there was a single investor who had, all by himself, diagnosed the illness in the American financial system and had taken a position against it. And he was, again, 
an absolutely riveting character study. His name was Michael Burry, and he was a neurologist at Stanford Hospital. He was a resident in neurology in the late 90s who had seemingly superhuman amounts of energy because in addition to being a doctor, he was blogging about the financial markets at night. And he had set himself up to be a value investor in Silicon Valley in the late 90s, which was a very odd thing to do. But his hero was Warren Buffett, and he started to write up ideas about how to invest in stocks. And his ideas on the Internet attracted such a following that when he put up a little sign on his blog and said, I'm no longer going to be a doctor, I've decided what I really want to do is manage money, money found him. He himself had no money. He himself had $150,000 in student loans. But big money found him. And within a few years, had several hundred million dollars in a hedge fund in San Jose, California, and was busily doing what he thought he was put on earth to do, looking for companies that were undervalued. He was exploring companies in the real estate market and in the financial sector when he saw that he couldn't in good conscience invest in these companies unless he understood this other thing that was happening called the subprime lending market. And so he started to actually read subprime bond prospectuses and study the market and came to the conclusion that the only responsible thing he could do with the money he was trusted with was to invest it against this market. And he was also like Eisman and Lippmann, socially cut off. He sensed that he was different from other people before he understood why. When he was two years old, he developed a rare form of cancer, and the operation to remove the tumor had cost him his left eye. A boy with one eye sees the world differently from everyone else, but it didn't take long for Mike Berry to see his literal distinction in more figurative terms. Grown-ups were forever insisting that he should look other people in the eye, especially when he was talking to them. It took all my energy to look someone in the eye, he said. If I'm looking at you, that's the one time I know I won't be listening to you. His left eye didn't line up with whomever he was trying to talk to. When he was in a social situation trying to make chit-chat, the person to whom he was speaking would steadily drift left. I don't really know how to stop it, he said, so people just keep moving left until they're standing way to my left, and I'm trying not to turn my head anymore. I end up facing right and looking left with my good eye through my nose. His glass eye, he assumed, was the reason that face-to-face -face interaction with other people almost always ended badly for him. He found it maddeningly difficult to read other people's nonverbal signals, and their verbal signals he often took more literally than he meant them. When trying his best, he was often at his worst. My compliments tend not to come out right, he said. I learned early that if you compliment somebody, it'll come out wrong. For your size, you look good. That's a really nice dress. It looks homemade. <laughs> the glass eye became his private explanation for why he hadn't really fit in with groups. The eye oozed and wept and required constant attention. It wasn't the sort of thing other kids ever allowed him to be unselfconscious about. They called him cross-eyed, even though he wasn't. Every year, they begged him to pop his eye out of his socket, but when he complied, it became infected and disgusting and the cause of further ostracism. In his glass eye, he found the explanation for other traits peculiar to himself his obsession with fairness, for example. When he noticed the pro basketball stars were far less likely to be called for traveling than lesser players, he didn't just holler at the refs, he stopped watching basketball altogether. The injustice of it killed his interest in the sport. Even though he was ferociously competitive, well-built, physically brave, and a good athlete, he didn't care for team sports. The eye helped to explain this, as most team sports were ball sports, 
and a boy with poor depth perception and limited peripheral vision couldn't very well play ball sports. He tried hard at the less ball-centric positions in football, but his eye popped out if he ever hit somebody hard. Again, it was hard for him to see where his physical limitations ended and his psychological ones began. He assumed the glass eye was the bottom of both. He couldn't stand the unfairness of coaches who favored their own kids. Umpires who missed calls drove him to distraction. He preferred swimming, as it required virtually no social interaction, no teammates, no ambiguity. You just swam your time, and you won or you lost. Well, what Michael Berry doesn't know, as he's diagnosing the financial system, is that he is undiagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. And he finds this out in the middle of his journey. What we're going to discuss now is that journey, I think. But the amazing thing about this story to me, when you look at what's just happened in this country, is that we are surrounded by people who are in positions of authority in the financial system, all of whom missed what a man with Asperger's syndrome and a glass eye saw. And that should give us all pause. Thank you. Michael Lewis's latest book is called The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. Coming up after a break, I join Michael Lewis on stage to talk with him more about his book, his own personal thoughts about Wall Street after the crash, and to take some questions from the audience. I'm John Greenberg. You're listening to a special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage here on NHPR. It's delightful to meet you and to have you here on Writers on a New England Stage. This is really great. Thank you. You described these characters of yours in a pretty favorable light, but some people might say that they were as morally bankrupt as anybody on Wall Street. Why? They simply made a bet, and they made the right bet, and they cashed out. How do you respond to this type of charge against them? You know, it's an interesting charge because you've got these people who, in the first place, didn't have anything to do with the creation of the problem. In the second place, who are providing an example of how you should think as an investor, that if more people had thought that way, the whole problem wouldn't have occurred. That if more people were paying attention to what was going on in front of their nose, the loans at the bottom of the mess would never have occurred. In addition, I mean, where it gets even more interesting is that, for the most part, Eisman is a bit of an exception, but not even he. His fund is called a long-short equity fund that's biased towards the long. But the other two, they thought what they were supposed to be doing is investing in the stock market and get twisted around by the warpness of the financial system into this other position. They're entrusted with other people's money. They're supposed to invest it intelligently, and the financial system presents them with this as the intelligent option. What are they supposed to do? Pack up and go home? In addition, they're the only people who are shouting at the top of their lungs that this is horrible and shouldn't be going on. One of these characters goes to the SEC, goes to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, before they make their bet, in fact, because they can't believe what they're seeing in front of them, and nobody wants to hear it. To the extent they had any power to change the world and prevent this crisis, the best way for them to have done it was to have done what they did, bet against the thing and tell everybody they're doing it. It didn't make any difference in the long run. Now, having said all that, 
it makes them very interesting as characters that the reader can, though they are kind of cast as the heroes, they're the protagonists of the story, that a reader who wants to feel grievance towards them can, that it isn't, they aren't simple heroes. They themselves would not see themselves this way. They're traumatized in many ways by their experience. They all, you, know, you will notice in the story, they all have health problems. Eisman puts it best. Eisman says, when it worked out, when the markets start to crash, I know how Noah felt. The flood comes and yeah, you're happy you built the ark. But when you're on the boat watching the civilization get swept away, it's not a happy moment for Noah. It's a complicated position they're in, and really an indictment of the Wall Street we've just been living in, that the people who are most plausibly cast as heroes are the people who bet against it. Did you have to wrestle with yourself as you were getting to know them and figure out your own moral take on them? A bit, but they were such good characters, they had me at hello to start with. (laughs) And I also, look, I don't have this problem. I don't think there's anything immoral about shorting things, about betting against. In fact, I think that if there's been a problem in the financial markets in this period, it's been the problem of negative information being able to sufficiently publicize. I think that the ability to bet against securities is absolutely critical for the markets to function well, that it's the only thing that creates the incentive for negative news to get into the system. Otherwise, you just got kind of a boosterish sentiment. So I didn't have a, like a principled objection to how they had made their money. What complicated it for me, and what does actually create a question, is that in this particular case, their bets against the subprime mortgage market were used by the big Wall Street firms to, in effect, replicate the absolute worst of the loans. So the effect was to replicate the amount of risk in the system. So what should have happened in a properly functioning market is their bets would have discouraged lending. But they were so trivial in the context of things that really all that happened is that they slightly exacerbated the problem. I was trying to explain to a friend part of your book. What a synthetic CDO is? I didn't even go there. Wouldn't have gotten to first base. So as a writer, how do you approach taking on that challenge, knowing that before people can really understand and pay attention to the characters, that they've got to have some grasp of a pretty technical setup, and there's a steep learning curve. I flipped that around, actually. It's before they want to learn what a synthetic CDO is, they have to be attached to the characters. And that's the way the book is structured. You get to know these people and very broadly what's going on before you were forced to read about a synthetic CDO. And the hope is that you now have a stake in understanding what they're doing because you care about them. So you will wade through a couple of pages of explanation of what this is. And at bottom, you know, I have found just generally with the financial writing I've done, people have a much greater tolerance for complexity than you might think. They want to understand. And if you can put it in a way they can understand, they will eat it up. And in fact, what seems like an obstacle to telling a story actually becomes an advantage because a reader who feels they're actually learning about something that they need to know will become very invested in the story. And a reader who is attached to the story will go all sorts of places they would never imagine they wanted to go. You describe a totally dysfunctional market. Mm. One where people are utterly in the dark about the risks that they're taking, sometimes willingly in the dark. 
about the risks that they're taking. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is that the world that you expected to find as you drilled down into these characters and into this situation? I was shocked. I mean, when I came back to Wall Street for a book, I was shocked with this fact that the big firms had become the dumb money. And that basically what had happened was a machine had been created that paid lots of people to originate these subprime mortgage loans, package them, sell them off. But that for the machine to function, I mean, when you're doing this, you're creating a lot of risk. It had to disguise the risk. The way it disguised the risk was with complexity. But the shocking thing, the thing that surprised me, was that the very people who had designed the machine end up being fooled by their own creations. That you have this very strange situation of proprietary traders at Morgan Stanley losing $10 billion on a single bet on AAA-rated subprime-backed CDOs because they believe the rating when they help rig the ratings agencies in the first place. It, it is this problem of if you tell a lie often enough, you start to believe the lie. And I think that's broadly what happened. Anybody who wants to argue this was just a purely crooked enterprise has to explain why the Wall Street firms ended up owning all this stuff. They were actually, I think, there was an awful lot of delusion baked into the system. Thinking of financial reform, and there are regulatory packages moving through the House, moving through the Senate. Do you see anything in either of them that will fundamentally change the world that you describe? I've read the newspaper accounts, and it's interesting because the editorializing about the financial reform bills is all negative. It's all, this won't work, this isn't enough, or it's too much. Out of Wall Street, you hear both arguments. Nobody seems to like the bill as it's currently constructed. But the broad strokes of it that I've seen make a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot of sense, for example, this push to force anything that's traded onto an exchange or be forced it to be traded through a clearinghouse. This is absolutely essential. I mean, one of the reasons we had the financial crisis was, I mean, one reason was the actual losses in the system, but another reason was no one knew what the losses in the system were, so there was all this uncertainty. And the reason there was all that uncertainty is that when Morgan Stanley makes its $15 billion bet on subprime mortgages, it doesn't do it out in the open. It does it by calling Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch and just creating these side bets which are invisible, opaque, so they're their own investors. And you don't know how much of that is out there. And if all trading in whatever it was, was forced to go through a clearinghouse and was traded on screens so you could see the prices trade, one, it'd be much harder to rip off customers because they could see what the right price was for various things. And two, if a firm got in trouble, the clearinghouse would know exactly how much exposure it had, and the exposure would be the clearinghouse. It wouldn't be to the other firms. Right now, they are useful to them, locked in a kind of death grip. No one can fail because if one fails, they all fail. So that is, I think, in the Dodd bill to get all this force all derivatives be traded that way. The Volcker rule, I don't know where that stands, but Obama seems to think it's a good idea. It's one way of addressing this, you can't trade what you're advising customers to buy. So that's a good idea. I think ultimately the theme of this story that I've written is not that Wall Street people are evil, it's that there's, the system of incentives has become evil, and the people are operating in a system of incentives that just needs to be changed. It's the wrong system of incentives. And I think that anyone who's sort of designing the legislation, if they're thinking about what it might lead to that would be good, one thing it might lead to that would be good 
is to encourage all the sophisticated risk taking to be taken inside of a partnership structure. The genie was out of the bottle the minute it was no longer the traders' money they were playing with. And what you're talking about here is the transformation of Solomon Brothers when they moved from a partnership to being publicly traded. They were the first big firm to, to become a publicly traded corporation, and then, which meant all of a sudden the people inside were not liable. For, if the place went down before that, the partners were personally on the hook, you know, lose their houses. And so the uh, attitude towards risk-taking was somewhat different. It's very, it seems inconceivable to me that a partnership would be, say, caught sitting on $50 billion of subprime mortgage-backed bonds. They just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't run the leverage they run. It would be self-policing. And this is the sort of the big thing. And a lot of the discussion about reform, there's an assumption that you might be able to create a kind of super regulator who has special powers and can actually sort of police this environment. The environment is unpoliceable if the incentives are wrong. That if people are paid to do bad things, they will do bad things. They're regulators. They don't have to stand a prayer. They'll be lesser paid. The only way you can actually regulate the environment is if the rules are basically sane. And so the people are encouraged to basically behave well. Let's read some of the questions from the audience. What do you think of Goldman's statement that they didn't do it? It depends on what they didn't do. There wasn't much. But um, <laughs> look... It's true that Goldman wasn't actually the absolute worst in the creation of the risk. That Goldman was also shrewd enough to get out right before the collapse. Not as shrewd as J.P. Morgan. They got out well before the collapse. Goldman, in a sane world, Goldman would have had a huge losses. They were lucky to be able to get out when they got out. But the problem I have with the behavior of Goldman Sachs is that they're very clearly the leaders on Wall Street. Everybody wants to be Goldman Sachs. Morgan Stanley gets itself into trouble every five years by trying to imitate what Goldman Sachs is doing. And it feels like a version of wasps gone wild. They, 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 they see what these guys at Goldman are doing, and maybe we could do that, and then they end up losing their shirts. Um, this is an old-fashioned thing. I think Goldman should have had what it once had, a sense of noblesse oblige, that it should have had something built in, a self-regulating mechanism. And it once did. When it was a partnership, it was run by a, a homeboy of mine, a New Orleanian named Gus Levy, who was famously, would famously talk about the importance of being long-term greedy, which was you're always looking to take the long view. And that's very easy to do when you're in a partnership and you're not getting paid huge sums of money at the end of every year and most of your wealth is in that firm. And they weren't long-term greedy. They were short-term greedy. There are many uh, original sins in this saga, but one of the original sins in this crisis was the moment that Goldman Sachs persuaded AIG to insure the worst of the subprime mortgage bonds to the extent they did. That jump-started the machine. You don't get the loans at the end of the pipeline or the start of the pipeline unless you have someone who's ultimately willing to take the risk. And we still don't know the content of the conversation between the Goldman Sachs salesperson, who I met, and the AIG buyer, who is in hiding. We still don't know how much Goldman disclosed. It seems pretty clear that AIG didn't know what it was doing, that they didn't even realize that the piles of loans that they had insured were entirely subprime mortgage loans. What bothers me is not just that Goldman may have deceived AIG into doing this business. I'm not sure they did. It's that the Goldman traders on the other end of it knew it was dumb. They knew that AIG was essentially writing ridiculously cheap insurance. 
they would have known that this put AIG in a very precarious position. In a better world, the elite of Wall Street stands up and says, you don't do this business, and you go right to the Treasury or the Fed, or you go to the AIG's regulators and say, this place is going to get in trouble. We're not doing this, but someone's going to do it, and you got to stop it before it starts. And that thought doesn't even cross their minds. And we need to get to a place where it does. And are you saying that we get there by changing the whole system of incentives? I mean, the genie is out of the bottle. But it can be put back in. There was a time where it was not legal for these firms to be public corporations. You wouldn't even have to go that far, I don't think. If you made it onerous enough to be a public corporation and make these sort of bets, the risk-taking would move naturally, I think, into a partnership structure. Another question from the audience. Tell us about your writing routines. When do you write? Do you write nonstop? I don't have that much of a routine. I have no routine. I have three small children. I mean, I've got a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old, and they are routine-destroying missiles. And so I don't even pretend to have a routine. What I have is uh, moments of panic uh, instead of a routine. So uh, this book was not exceptional this way. In fact, if anything, it was even more panic-ridden than other things I've written. It takes me a long time to figure out the story I want to tell and who's in that story and to essentially plot it in a funny way to think about how the narrative unfolds. And I spend a lot of time essentially marinating in the existence of my characters. The relationship becomes very intimate. I don't sleep with them as a matter of principle, but uh, then also preference. But other than that, it's a very intimate relationship. And when I feel like I've sort of bagged the elephant, pretty much when I'm ready to write, which can be a year after I've started thinking about something, I go down to my little office, which is a cabin. It actually looks like where a writer should write, uh, which is probably a bad sign. But it's just 20 yards from my house. I walk down in the mornings after I've dropped the kids at school, and I will write for three or four hours. But the only thing that gets me going is the deadline. And it's in some ways artificial, because authors can famously just say, you're not getting your book this year. I don't do that. I make myself abide by the deadline. And so then I force myself to write a certain number of words a day. And at the end, Trollope used to do this. Trollope, the English novelist, when he finished writing a page, he'd count up the words and then he'd figure out, he knew what he was paid per word, and at the bottom of the page, he'd calculate how much money he just made. <laughs> I don't go quite that far, but at the end of the day, I do make a point of seeing how many words I've written. So I know I'm on a pace. And the writing is always the first step. I mean, writing is rewriting. It really is rewriting. And the first thing never is any good. It's always terrible. And it just gets better and better and better in the redoing. But when I'm in full throttle, the number of hours a day I spend doing it is shocking. I mean, I write 12 hours a day. You're a regular contributor to the radio show This American Life. It's been a while. I used to be a regular contributor. But yes, I love the show. So how different does it feel when you're writing for radio versus when you're writing a book or you're writing a magazine piece? Um, writing for radio is... Um, is for me, what little I've done of it. I was just ripping out the things I had written for magazines and reading them under the radio. They work that way, because what I did for This American Life were largely travel logs, and that works. For me, it wasn't that different. There's a big difference, however, in writing magazine pieces and books. The magazine pieces tend to have a more editorial flavor. There usually is an, kind of an argument being pushed on the reader. With the books, you have the space to do the most important thing a narrative does, and it's to leave holes for the reader to walk into, to leave ambiguity, 
to leave this question of whether these people are good people or bad people up to the reader to decide. So for example, with magazine pieces, I very seldom have responses to them that surprise me. I usually kind of know what's going to happen in the audience. With a book, the response is always a little shocking. I'm always surprised by how people respond to the book. And it's because the book has the space for the reader to take over the story. And that's just, I mean, there's a world of difference. You bring gambling into the big short a lot in a number of ways. Um, there's this one scene set in Las Vegas where you've got a handful of guys who know what's going on and they're in this ocean of people who are utterly duped. Right. And I wonder, are you saying at some level that all of us are the marks in a casino? The gambling metaphor runs through the book because it's the easiest way to explain what happened in the financial system. It's a bet, one big bet. And it was God's gift to the narrative nonfiction writer that the moment, the moment before the bet is determined, the moment before the subprime market cracks, a day before, is the industry conference in a Las Vegas casino. And that there are 6,000 people there. Anyone who has anything to do with this machine is there. And my characters are also there wandering around, but with an entirely different spirit from everybody else. They're there as spies. They're the only ones who were cynical about it all. So that, that was just wonderfully lucky that that happened there and then. But do I think of all of us as the marks? I don't think of the American people as the innocent victims that the American people would like to think of themselves as. I chose to focus the story for all kinds of reasons on the Wall Street angle, the private sector Wall Street event. It interested me the most for all sorts of reasons. It interested me for what it said about how markets work or don't work. But if you force me to broaden it out and make judgments about the behavior of, say, the subprime mortgage borrowers, I think it's a very messy story. I think in a lot of cases, people behave badly. They, they lied knowingly to get money so they could speculate on houses. On the other hand, there were people who were genuinely victims. I mean, you can't, it's hard to generalize about the pool of people on the receiving end of these loans. They were all over the map. But I think where I feel like I want to hold the American people to a different standard than they hold themselves is this whole issue about who ultimately is to blame. This was a failure of not just the private sector, but the public sector. And we've got this very bad habit in this country of regarding the public sector as something other than ourselves. But we're the ones who put the people there. We're the ones who can change things. Those people in Washington aren't them, and we aren't us. It's all us. And so what happened in Washington was an expression of who we are. You can't just say they did it. So I don't feel, as a people, we are the marks in this story. It's much more complicated than that. Do you think it matters that so many people, myself included, have our retirement funds tied up in the market in some way or another, that we're just feeding the beast? It matters to you. I mean, it's terrifying what this beast wrought. And it's terrifying that it hasn't been tamed, that having done the damage it's done, having exposed itself for what it is, that there isn't a more instant public outcry to cage the beast. So you know, you're asking me, do you bear some responsibility because you're a shareholder in public? No, I don't think that. I think, in fact, I feel in many ways a lot of investors are just pure victims in this. On the other hand, one of the indictments that emerges from this saga is an indictment of the system of public 
capitalism, of public corporations. It is amazing that uh, the market indulged these firms in their activities without having any idea what those activities were. Uh, that they, they were willing to pour money into the black box without understanding the inner workings of the box. And it does make you wonder about shareholder capitalism. It, it really does, the whole episode. Um, I, don't, I think it's a little much to ask individual investors to reflect on that and pull their money out of the market as a result. Um, so I don't, I haven't really thought about that moral calculus. What have you heard from people who work on Wall Street about your book? Well, you tend to hear only from the people who like it immediately. The people who come and talk to you are the people who are supportive. It is really interesting how complicated politically this, this situation is. An awful lot of Wall Street wants Wall Street reformed. They don't like being in a, system, a screwed up incentive system any more than, than I do. And so I have, let me think, the sources, of the, the sources of input I get from Wall Street. I can read about you know, the responses in the newspaper, but that's maybe not the best way to get a sense of what they're thinking. But I have, you know, the best way to find out what people on Wall Street are thinking for me is just turn on my Bloomberg machine. Bloomberg the corp the, uh, gives me a terminal, and everybody on the Wall Street is hooked up to the terminal on a message system. And so I get, I get lots and lots of messages that way from Wall Street. And so far, they've been extremely supportive. They're interested in the story. They like the book. Several people have called me out on, on how easy it is to write about predicting the crisis after the crisis. You know, why didn't I write this book before the crisis? But that's not what I do. You know, I, I, I've never made any pretense about being able to predict what's going to happen. And this was a story about people who happened to be able to do it. It isn't really about my own impressions. But people have tried to construe it that way, and there's a little, a little bit of hostility that way. But other than that, you know, there, you can see what's coming. The book is doing so well, and it's gotten so much attention that it's, it's become politicized. I've heard from the a lot from the Financial Inquiry Commission. I feel like some of the noises that are coming out of Goldman Sachs now are essentially a response to the book, and it's just denying, you know, they're denying that they did certain things, but it's a little unclear what they're denying. And Alan Greenspan has got himself in an imbroglio with Michael Burry, the Asperger's syndrome, glass-eyed uh, seer. That my, I don't know if you saw it, but, my, but it, at Greenspan on, was asked about the book, he said those guys were just lucky, and Michael Burry took the opportunity to write an op-ed in the New York Times a few days ago explaining why he wasn't just lucky. And he's now in an argument with Alan Greenspan, which I think gives him great delight. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, so that's kind of been the, the formal financial system response so far. But it's the early days. This thing only came out three weeks ago. Are you done writing about the financial industry? I thought I was in 1990. So. I really don't think I'm going to write another book about it. I know, I think I know what my next three books are. And they line up very neatly and they're away from this. They've, they might inform, the, but they're not Wall Street-centered books. Do you care to say what they are? No, I don't. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, but thanks for asking. Um, I think um, it's so hard to make business swing on the page. It takes such an extraordinary confluence of circumstances to generate the material for something I would do. I don't write editorial-like books. I don't write arguments in books. I don't think anybody reads those kind of books. I don't really read those kind of books. I can find that kind of stuff to magazine newspaper writing. 
So it's hard for me to see how that world would generate a narrative as good as the two I've been lucky enough to walk into. So it's hard to come back unless you think it might be even better, and I just don't imagine that's going to happen. Michael Lewis, thanks for being on Writers on a New England stage. Thank you, John.